You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Peter Ernest, the executive director of the museum. I served for some 36 years in the Central Intelligence Agency, largely as what is called an operations officer or a case officer. Every month we'll be bringing you interesting talks with visitors, with authors, with others who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. Our guest today is Marine Corps Brigadier General Thomas Drowdy, now retired. Uh, Tom, may I call you that? Please. All right. Uh, Tom attended the, uh, the Naval Academy, graduated, and was commissioned in 1962. He had a lifelong desire, ambition as it were, to be a Marine, and he fulfilled that, and over the years served in a variety of command staff positions. In 1990, as a Brigadier General, he joined the 1st Marine Division as its assistant division commander, and while in that position, he was in charge of deception for the Marines involved in Operation Desert Storm. And that's what we wanted to talk about today, yes. because our focus will be, during Desert Storm, the deception operations that you, in effect, were in charge of. Uh, incidentally, General Dowdy retired from the Marine Corps in 1992, and he is and has been for some eight years the CEO of the Marine Corps University Foundation in Quantico, Virginia. So, uh, a number of our listeners uh, that we hear from are, in some cases, new to intelligence, uh, new to thinking about world affairs and the way that we do here. Could you give us a sense of Desert Storm? What was Desert Storm? Surely. Uh, Desert Storm was an operation uh, running from 17 January until 28 February of 1991, uh, a coalition of uh, 34 countries uh, operating under a United Nations, United Nations mandate uh, to do two things, uh, eject the Iraqis from Kuwait and restore the government in Kuwait. And uh, preceding this, in August of uh, 1990, the Iraqis had invaded Kuwait and uh, taken over at that point. So in response to that, the first operation was Desert Shield, which was a uh, more of a defensive uh, operation, and then the attack into Kuwait to restore the government and to eject the Iraqis was known as Desert Storm. And just to add a little personal color to it, I remember when uh, the Iraq, uh, Iraq, Saddam Hussein took over Kuwait, there were screaming headlines, and the reports coming out of Kuwait were just horrible atrocities of, of murders and rapes, imprisonments and so forth being carried out by the Iraqi forces. Yes. And there, there was a, an out, a sense of outrage around the world and a cry for somebody to do something. And yes. so it was not just a little minor uh, sideshow uh, in the Middle East. It really was the center of, intention, uh, of attention. 
And the, the question had been, would or would he not, that is Saddam Hussein, go into Kuwait? Well, the answer was he did. And that's what you were confronted with, uh, being in the Marine Corps at that time, part of the American force. We were in the, uh, the further concern was would he go into Saudi Arabia? And uh, with that, not just the oil, but also the water. Sure. And so all of those uh, factors uh, then brought about, again, the first operation of Desert Shield, that is a defensive alignment, yes. if you will, that then was followed by Desert Storm, which was the offensive aspect of our operations. Right. How did you, uh, and you don't have to get into names, but how did you happen, how did you come to be placed in charge of the deception operation that was part and parcel of the Marines going into Kuwait? Uh, Peter, this is a case of where uh, when you think you have a good idea, uh, you're oftentimes uh, put in charge of it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I wrote a paper. Um, <laughs> you think I mean, you're so smart. <laughs> but literally on a yellow line tablet uh, uh, about deception and some things that we should uh, consider based upon um, my interest in it uh, that has gone over a period of years. And I provided it to the division commander, uh, General Mike Myatt, who then provided it to the uh, uh, commander of the Marine Forces, uh, General Walt Boomer. And General Boomer said, okay, Drowdy, you're, you're in charge of deception. So, and uh, I was uh, blessed with that uh, assignment in addition to being the uh, assistant division commander of the 1st Marine Division. Once you volunteered your, your thoughts and were actually then said, okay, these are some great ideas, you're in charge. What were your first steps? What did you do after you got that assignment? I guess the first thing was uh, say a prayer to, to make sure it would all, all work out as, as I'd hoped. Uh, but the, uh, the next was to uh, gather together folks that uh, would be uh, useful in, in this endeavor. And uh, I guess I was looking for individuals who, to use an old phrase, uh, able to think outside the box, but not too far outside the box. Uh, one of the, uh, the challenges from what I had read about deception is that um, if it appears to be hokey or, or so outlandish, then it, it not only becomes uh, useless, it becomes counterproductive because the enemy then really knows you're up to something different from what you're portraying. So as uh, to surround myself with uh, uh, guys smarter than, than me, which was easy to do, and, uh, and to then go over what what it was that we, we had in mind to, to accomplish, uh, what we would need in the way of assets, uh, and then to go out to the various commanders to get uh, their contribution, if you will, to the uh, deception effort. And again, it's useful when it's a general officer making that request as opposed to a uh, colonel or below, and it's simply because it's easy to say no uh, to, uh, to a peer, but kind of have to say no to, uh, to a general. So, But in this, my case, I had the full support of a both General Myatt and General Boomer, so uh, it uh, made it a lot easier. Let me just ask you, General, did you have a background in deception? Is this something that had been a personal interest? Had you been trained or educated in the field? What, what prompted you to, to make that suggestion? What was your background in doing it? More uh, of interest and then um, a little bit of uh, exposure, if you will. The interest uh, really began in uh, 1956, uh, when I was 16 years old, with the movie uh, The Man Who Never Was, a true story of the, uh, uh, the alleged uh, British Royal Marine Major whose body, and uh, a follow-on book to that is uh, Operation Mincemeat. Uh, but anyway, I saw that movie as a youngster and said, gee, that's fascinating to think that they could bring about those results by, uh, by use of deception. Uh, I guess furthered uh, another book of... Uh, 
Vicari's book, uh, Little Drummer Boy, and again, the use of deception and, and uh, the, uh, uh, all the factors that go into that. Uh, I was an instructor at Fort Bragg uh, between Vietnam tours and had a chance to uh, attend some of the classes and I guess picked up from that as well. But I guess the main thing was uh, I was a convert to um, uh, maneuver warfare, which means uh, operating a little bit smartly, uh, use of deception, um, find a flank or make a flank, all of those things that uh, would cause us to, uh, to fight smarter. So a uh, long answer to your question, but uh, interest and uh, a little bit of experience. And I know you served with great distinction in Vietnam. Had you had some experience of deception operations in Vietnam? Uh, very limited. Uh, the deception there would be uh, so elementary of a helicopter uh, landing zone going to one spot and then to another as if we were uh, going to fool the Viet Cong and, and to where the actual landing would be, but nothing of any uh, any degree of uh, formality or uh, uh, sophistication that uh, we later had an opportunity to, to bring about. Could you just uh, talk to me a little bit about deception? Bring, bring me up to speed as a layman and sort of when you use that term and you think about deception, what are you thinking about? Are there some principles? What are you, what are you drawing on as you approach what you're doing and what we did in Kuwait? But you're thinking in terms of deception. What's that about? Deception uh, for me was uh, to convince uh, my adversary uh, that uh, we were going to do something or think about doing something that would work to our interests uh, should he uh, believe that. Uh, the perfect deception is, uh, and probably the best example was, again, the man who never was, of uh, that we were actually going to attack Sicily, but to have uh, Hitler convinced that it was going to be uh, Greek and Sardinia. Um, it helps a great deal when the, the target of your deception uh, has uh, a preconceived notion of what you're going to do. And if you can then reinforce that, it helps a great deal. Uh, in the Pentagon, we had a saying that the only thing harder than driving in a new idea was driving out an old one. Uh, so if you know what uh, your enemy wants to believe and can reinforce that, it makes it easier. Uh, it's also uh, a matter of um, uh, understanding what can be concealed, uh, what should not be concealed, uh, what is part of the, the overall plan, but again designed to uh, uh, accomplish the mission with the minimum risk of uh, life and limb by uh, using uh, our intelligence uh, in, in both the uh, military sense as well as our, our intuitive intelligence uh, to, to bring about the results based upon uh, a plan, a picture, uh, a scheme, a perception that is, uh, that is uh, not, uh, not true. This, of course, uh, the idea of deception goes back to Sun Tzu, the military, Chinese military strategist. If you can win the battle with never firing a shot, as it were. Um, in, in my class on deception, I go back to the Garden of Eden. Uh, so it really goes way back to okay. deception. Uh, the deception in the Garden of Eden yeah. being? <laughs> well, the, uh, the, the uh, serpent yes. uh, telling Eve, you know, if you eat the apple, you'll... Yes. Yeah, so we, we live with deception literally all, all of our, our lives. <laughs> A good example. Um, deception, and I'll, I'll just pick up on what you were talking about, Operation Mincemeat, which was the man who never was. Uh, and, and I think when we think of deception, we also think of, doing a variety of things. We're trying, what we're trying to do is paint a false picture in the adversary's mind. So it may consist of a number of things that we do. Oh, yes. Mincemeat being one thing, there were other things that were done. And I'm thinking uh, that you, you were thinking in the same way. I've heard reference to 
uh, task force Troy during this period. Was that part of the deception uh, activities? It was. Task Force Troy was a follow-on to my being assigned as a deception officer. Uh -huh. And I called together a small group and said, uh, here's our, our task, is to conduct uh, deception operations. And um, one of the uh, factors is, of course, uh, having the resources to, to do that. Uh, in Desert Storm, or the lead-up to Desert Storm, the, uh, the challenge we had was uh, we were fighting outnumbered. And so for any of the units to give up any resources was going to be a struggle. And so one of the factors in a successful deception operation is to have the commander's support so that it's not a thing of, well, I've got to do this, so a minimal uh, 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 support of it, but rather full-fledged support in order to get the, uh, the assets. So with Task Force Troy, which averaged about 120 Marines, uh, we, among other things, replicated the 2nd Marine Division which is over uh, 15,000 uh, by uh, when the 2nd Marine Division was on our eastern or our right flank and we wanted to reposition them over to the left of us, we wanted the Iraqis to believe that they were still in place. And so Task Force Troy was a part of that deception effort to, to replicate the 2nd Division. So as, for example, when their artillery and tanks would be uh, pulling out, uh, we would then put into place uh, dummy tanks and artillery that had been constructed by the Seabees so that for the purpose of the Iraqis looking at all of this, everything was the same. Uh, we would continue having helicopters that would stop at what was the old uh, command post and uh, as if making liaison visits. Meanwhile, the division was pulling around behind us and moving over to the western flank. Uh, Task Force Troy was also involved in uh, uh, things such as the use of uh, noises as part of our deception. Uh, one day, uh, an Army Psychological Operations officer came to me and, and uh, said, I'm reporting to you, I have a number of assets. Uh, asked what they were, included leaflets, uh, which are useful, but you have to be careful that it, it states what, what you want the re reader to understand, not what you think makes sense. Uh, he also said he had uh, tapes. And I said, that, that's, that's great. Uh, what do you have, a rock and roll uh, Country Western, uh, Golden, he said, no, no, not tapes of music, it's uh, tapes of noise. And I said, well, Captain, if you listen carefully, I've got all the noise here that I need. I don't need tapes of noise, I've got real noise. No, sir, no, sir, uh, uh, th this is noise made by weapon systems. And so the light went on, my case is an infantryman, uh, and said, do you happen to have uh, tank noise? And he lightened up and said, sir, I've got... M60 tank noise, which we have, and the M1A1 tank noise. Now, as a Marine, to have a choice of something, this is, this is fantastic. So I said, all right, give me the uh, tank noise for the M60 tank, and we're going to hook those up to loudspeakers, and at night uh, run those the loudspeakers with that tank noise opposite the Iraqi lines that we may be penetrating. And um, when we punched through that, that uh, unit, our interpreter brought the logbook of, of that unit, and, and said, General, you're not going to believe this. I said, try me. He said, the first night that we ran those tank noises, the enemy went ballistic, tank attack, tank attack, full alert, and everybody locked and cocked and ready to go. Uh, next night, uh, tank noises again. Uh, after about two weeks, uh, the notation is uh, tank noises, uh, ho-hum, or the Arabic equivalent of that. And then one night they heard tank noises and they weren't recordings. Uh, and... Um, we were able to punch through because we had lulled them into 
that sense of hearing tank noises. So it's a, a part of what Task Force Troy did, uh, but I think it's an example of how with a minimum uh, of uh, assets, you can bring about some significant results, and that's what I think the, the message of deception is, to, to fight smart and uh, to make use of uh, the intelligence, the assets, the uh, imagination, the ingenuity that are, are typically uh, Americans. And as I said one time, we, we should be experts at deception. We've lived with it all of our lives. It's called advertising. Yes. So. Let me, if I may, just pick up on a couple of things quickly. When you talked about you know, this handful of folks, 140, by the way, I assume Troy is not a misnomer, but it was deliberately selected, deliberately perhaps selected. by you. Yeah, well, <laughs> I'm not sure who gets the credit for that. <laughs> but when you talked about replicating, what you, what you were saying, in effect, was these 140 people would do things so that they would look like the unit you just named, which was the... Second Marine Division. The second, and the Second Marine Division would then... Pulled behind us to get over to the western flank of us. Okay. What I wanted, I wanted to come to two things. What was the fundamental deception that you were carrying out? In other words, aside from the, this, the, the business with the tanks, which is fascinating, but what was the, what was the big picture on the deception? Uh, in that particular case, the deception was that the 2nd Division was where it had been, and therefore to the east of us, and therefore the, uh, the punch that we would make would be from our current locations rather than from our position as the 1st Marine Division and then also from a position to the west of us where the 2nd Division was. This led then to a, a double breach of the minefield, which allowed uh, the, both divisions to get through quickly and then to move on to, into uh, Kuwait, uh, Kuwait City and, and so forth. What do you mean by double breach of the minefield? Uh, that instead of a single breach of one division going through, followed by another division, that the two divisions would breach side by side. And, uh, and to do that, we needed the 2nd Division over to the west of us which is uh, the relocation, and therefore the, to deceive the enemy into thinking that 2nd Division was still to the east of us. And, but when you say breach, what do you mean? What, what do you mean? Uh, to actually get through the minefields to, uh, to be able to uh, get uh, uh, the, the tanks, uh, troops, equipment through without being uh, victims of the, of the mines. So well, was that an operation performed with, with mine clearers? In other words, were, were people law I'm trying to get the picture in my mind of breaching the minefield. Oh, you? Yes, a combination of uh, material. Uh, oftentimes it was Marines with bayonets uh, going out and, and finding the mines, marking them, marking the lanes so that we could get through. And uh, this is an area that we spent a lot of time in preparation uh, for this, uh, a great deal of it with the assistance of... Uh, the, uh, the Desert Rats, the, uh, the British uh, Brigade uh, uh, that assisted us with uh, an awful lot of things that were useful to us, uh, such as uh, mine clearance, uh, uh, being able to get across uh, barriers, uh, uh, trenches, etc. Clearly your deception, uh, the deception operation you, you decided on was to prepare the ground virtually before you went in and force. Before you did that, before we went in and force, could you tell that your deceptions were taking hold, that they were working, that the adversary was reacting in the way that you wanted him to react? I believe that we did because of uh, the lack of movement or response on their part. Um, they were still in place in the form of the divisions along the beach and the units opposite where the 2nd Marine Division had been. So as long as we were seeing no change in that disposition, we believed that they were still under the assumption that uh, we were going to do what they presumed we were going to do. So that gave us a lot of uh, 
of confidence that uh, that it was working, but always prepared that that uh, they were deceiving us in the process also. But we we were fairly confident. And then the other was uh, in the artillery raids that I had uh, described of uh, the uh, uh, response on the part of the Iraqis uh, when when fired upon. Uh, no longer were they automatically firing back. They they were looking for ways to surrender. So I think that that it helped also that uh, in kind of working down our, our uh, chipping away at their will to fight through various efforts, uh, the psyops, electronic warfare, etc., was having an effect on them. So uh, and that was prior to our actually uh, invading, and it gave us uh, uh, a better uh, uh, outlook than we had uh, initially. Again, with the uh, being outnumbered out-tanked, out-gunned, uh, all the rest of it. One of the things that uh, when you and I were talking earlier, I think you mentioned, this really was the first time that American forces, in this case Marine Corps, came up against what was, was it the third largest or sixth largest army in the world, standing army, isn't that, was it the sixth largest standing army? Four, fourth or sixth, some, somewhere in there, okay. but uh, I guess and, and with uh, highly vaunted, at least by its own uh, writers and so forth, yes. but we really, we really had not confronted them in battle. We had seen the whole confrontation between Iran and Iraq, which involved huge numbers of men being thrown, just thrown into yes. tanks and so forth. Um, did you, in the course of carrying this out, reformulate what the Iraqi fighting man was like? Uh, we did, uh, partly based upon the Battle of Kafchi. Now, the Battle of Kafchi was with the uh, Saudi Arabian National Guard, which we supported, but uh, they were the main components in, in re retaking the city of Kafchi. Uh, but we uh, noticed that the um, Iraqis could fire or maneuver, but not both. And, of course, success in combat means that you can fire and maneuver. Uh, also, um, the, uh, the reputation of being 10 feet tall kind of changed because of uh, their performance there. So... We had a greater uh, feeling of uh, confidence, certainly not overconfidence, but on our part of uh, being able to uh, to punch through the, the minefields and to uh, get into, uh, into Kuwait quickly and uh, secure Kuwait City and, and the rest of our objectives. So uh, that was, um, uh, I think, part of our, of our reevaluation. And uh, that, that was, uh, we had, the other was um, to condition the Iraqis into responding uh, to fire. Uh, we wanted uh, the Iraqis to believe that any time that they fired on an American that the uh, consequences were going to be uh, uh, uncomfortable. Uh, and so we would uh, use whatever we could in that regard, things like artillery raids that I mentioned to you. Uh, the, we were able to bring in the, uh, the battleship and a 16-inch round certainly gains your attention. So all of those factors that, uh, in fact, in one case, uh, uh, Iraqi units were s surrendering to uh, to drones that were overhead, uh, thinking that this was uh, some kind of a thing. And uh, other occasions where a single round would take place and tank crews would evacuate the, the tank immediately. So that psychological preparation, if you will, um, was also effective. Well, I, and I think you <clears throat> you touched on that earlier, namely that, that once you carried out this deception, you actually had encircled a bunch of Iraqis who simply... <clears throat> surrendered in droves. I mean, you had trouble transporting them to get, in, get, in, get them out of the uh, area of the fighting. We did. Uh, one of the major factors there, Peter, was the uh, amphibious assault and the, uh, the belief that that was going to take place. Um, we had reporters with the, our units. We didn't call them embedded reporters, but our feeling, uh, again, General Boomer had been 
uh, Director of Public Affairs as I was after this assignment, uh, believed that uh, the American media is the eyes and ears of the American people. And uh, therefore, they should see the things within reason, of course, that are taking place. Uh, uh, we would never lie to the press. That's uh, the mortal sin that we would not commit. But uh, allow the press to see what was taking place. Well, part of the press was aboard ship watching the amphibious rehearsals, the preparations, and so forth. And, of course, being televised. And one of the viewers was a guy named Saddam Hussein, who came to the conclusion that there was going to be an amphibious assault. And so we, we certainly reinforced that uh, belief by rehearsals, et cetera. And he then put in a place on the coast somewhere between five to seven divisions that were tied down that we did not have to fight because they were there to thwart an amphibious assault that, of course, did not take place. So we then just circled behind them and, and were able to capture them all with, uh, with minimum, uh, minimum fire or, or uh, risk to a life and limb on either side. Was the fundamental, the idea for a deception of this magnitude carried out the way you've described, was that the creation of one man or, or uh, I'm thinking back to the Inchon landing and that sort of thing where you, you I, think, I think that was MacArthur's own idea, was it not? It, it, it was, and, and, uh, <clears throat> and really, it, the, uh, the, the riskiness uh, added to the, the brilliance and the success of it. Uh, in this case, I think it was a, a matter of uh, factors not the least of which that um, to do an amphibious assault at that part of Kuwait would have been extremely difficult. Uh, challenges, uh, mines, uh, limited landing sites, uh, all of those things would have made an amphibious assault most, most difficult. And so with that uh, came the decision to not do an assault, but to continue on with the illusion that we were going to be doing the assault. And again, never lying to the press, was simply allowing them to see what we were doing uh, and uh, letting Saddam Hussein come to his conclusions, which were we were definitely going to do assault. And, and I guess part of the uh, reputation of the Marines, there's going to be an amphibious assault, perhaps uh, led uh, further to that conclusion. But it was the success in that regard of, uh, of tying down enemy divisions that we did not have to fight. I'm intrigued by the way you put that. No, you, you were very straightforward with the press, but you happened to be doing something that, in effect, you knew this wasn't what you were going to do. So, but let those think uh, what they will. Um, it was, it's clear from the way you describe it that you knew what you couldn't do. In other words, intelligence, the intelligence about the landing area, about what we knew about the Iraqis, where they were deployed and so forth, was critical to your then formulating the deception plan. Oh, yes. And, and uh, further <clears throat> in the deception, uh, in the class that I teach, uh, I focus on the, uh, the requirement for intelligence, uh, one of which is uh, determining whom you must deceive. Who's the individual who will make the decision that will either result in success or failure of your plan? And then the next step is knowing who that individual is, knowing everything you can about that person, uh, level of education, background, experience, all of those factors so that the, the message that is sent is not going to be over the head, but not so elementary that it would cause, you know, a, a concern or, or, or questioning, you know, what is this all about? It's got to be kind of the Goldilocks message of just right. Uh, but that only happens when you have good intelligence of knowing who the decision maker is, whom you must uh, 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 deceive. 
And then further with intelligence, what is, what is happening? Is, is there a response? Is it the response that you want? Uh, of course, in World War II, it was made a lot easier with Ultra that uh, you could read uh, the message traffic. But in our case, uh, just uh, watching what takes place. Uh, I, I would tell our folks, put yourself in the position of the enemy who's looking at our deception operations. And we use um, uh, a term called the salute report. And it's simply uh, the size, activity, location, unit, time, and equipment. What are those things that that enemy would be reporting on in our deception operation that would lead them to believe that we were going to do what the deception plan would be? And uh, then, you, then you accommodate accordingly. The, the size, again, it's, uh, it's, it has to be a size that you're capable of putting on the field. Uh, if you don't have an armored division, you're not going to fool anybody by, by indicating you've got an armored division. Uh, what kind of activity goes with it? Is it uh, digging in? Is it preparation for an assault? All of those things, again, part of the, the deception plan, but seen through the eyes of the enemy, the one that, that you want to, uh, to deceive. Well, it's quite clear from the results that the deception was a grand success. And I know that there's other researchers that have gone in and sort of verified what the Iraqis thought they were seeing. And quite clearly, they were seeing what you wanted them to see. Um, I'm just wondering, you touched on one thing there, which sort of the, uh, we both look back at World War II. By the way, may I use that? Goldilocks message? I think sure. that's a great <laughs> phrase, and I had never heard it. it was just something, right. Just right. Okay. Just right. Um, but the idea of communication, communications have changed so rapidly, even since, since a Desert Storm. And so either if we are confronting an adversary in the future, and it looks like our future is going to hold something along those lines from time to time, or an adversary coming at us, to what extent has, has the, the rapid, the, the, not just the Internet, but tweets and, and the, this ability... Uh, the cyber warfare aspect of uh, confrontation. To what, to what extent has that affected the ability to do something like what you did? I think, Peter, that uh, it presents, uh, this will sound strange, uh, but a golden opportunity. Uh, at a conference, I was asked that question, uh, how can you deceive now with all of the things that are available? And my response is because it provides greater assets in the way of the, the countermeasures uh, to that. So, and every measure has a countermeasure, and I think uh, if, as long as we look at it in that context, of, uh, it's not all over because now we have rapid communications, texting, tweeting, and all the rest of it. That provides more opportunities to send uh, the message that we want to reinforce the, uh, the deception plan. Mm -hmm. uh, the other part is that uh, sometimes uh, the deception is not going to be kind of a black and white full success full failure. It's going to be somewhere in between, but even that in between is, is, is useful. Um, first of all, as I tell my students, uh, I've checked the law of land warfare. It is not a war crime to, to fool the enemy, okay? Uh, but oftentimes fooling the enemy is simply creating uncertainty. Uh, what are you really going to do? And, and by, the, by creating that uncertainty, it adds to the uh, likelihood of our success as opposed to his certainty that we're going to do uh, A or B, but maybe it's a, an A minus or a B plus. Uh, it's uh, somewhere in between. So it's not a full-fledged uh, de deception victory with uh, everything accomplished and so forth. If it's enough to, uh, to confuse the enemy, to cause them to ask, what are they really up to? 
then it's worth the effort. Just a two, two final things. One, um, it was interesting to hear you describe how you came to head up the deception effort. Do you think we have, in many ways, become more sophisticated about deception in the American military? Uh, we've had so many uh, uh, opportunities that were in the last number of years to engage in conflict, whether it's Korea or Vietnam or now these uh, uh, activities in Iraq and, and so forth. Um, it sounded almost, when you described your efforts, as if you went in waving a book and said, oh, I think we could do this, and someone <laughs> said, okay, you're in charge. Do you think it's become uh, more of an accepted part of our operations, our military operations? I, I, I hope so, Peter. Uh, of course, so much of this is uh, going to be classified, and I'm not going to have access to that. But I would hope that uh, those things that we have learned, in many cases the hard way, uh, will not be lost, and that uh, uh, folks who can see the results of deception and and how in the, the planning stages as you're reviewing, reviewing courses of action that uh, you always hold one out that is not selected as a possible deception plan that could then uh, provide the basis then uh, for causing the enemy to, to wonder what are you really going to do, but that could be executed if necessary. Uh, and I, I'm just not sure. I can only hope that through the efforts of a number of gray beards like me that uh, can say, you know, deception really works and, uh, and it doesn't require a lot of assets. It just requires imagination, ingenuity, um, some, some smart folks smarter than, than we are individually but collectively uh, can be very, very useful. I hope that that uh, tremendous capability that we as Americans have would not be lost. Well, I, I, hearing the results and uh, knowing, by the way, that uh, this podcast will be listened to by any number of people, I hope your words uh, go forth. I hope a number of people listen to them. And I'd like to end, and I think in all fairness, you've been kind enough to join us today and offer th these remarks on Desert Storm. Could you say something about um, the, uh, the Marine Corps University Foundation? Which, oh, I'd love to. <laughs> well, uh, and I think uh, in all fairness, uh, we'd like to invite you to. I think this is known as a shameless plug, but I'll, but I'll seize it. Uh, yes, the Rinko University Foundation uh, provides uh, resources to enhance and enrich uh, professional military education and leadership. So that's our niche, so to speak, uh, primarily for the Marine Corps University, which is at Quantico in the form of the Marine Corps War College, School of Advanced Warfighting, Command and Staff College, uh, the Expeditionary Warfare School, but also the six staff and CO academies located throughout the world. So we're involved in professional military education of not just officers, also enlisted, and not just Americans, also international officers, and not just military, but other government agencies as well. Uh, we also support the operating forces and supporting establishment. So those units that uh, more and more find themselves with a limited budget, but a requirement or a desire to uh, uh, to do something beyond what they're capable of doing, what we call the margin of excellence, we attempt to provide the wherewithal to, to close that gap. So things like uh, battlefield studies and, and support of the units on, on uh, uh, guest speakers and, and so forth to enhance and enrich, again, their professional military education. So um, we, uh, we have a saying that we change lives and save lives uh, because we... Uh, we believe that professional military education is what will bring home 
uh, more and more of our youngsters because they've been better educated, better prepared for the uncertainties of, uh, of combat. Well, I would, I'm going to invite you, if you'd like to, to, to uh, provide an email or something. So anybody listening to this, if they want to contact you directly and ask more about it, they can. Sure. That's www.mcuf.org. Okay. How do you spell that again? M-C-U-F uh, uh, for Marine Corps University Foundation, dot org. Dot org. Okay. Yes, sir. Well, General Tom Drowdy, it has been a pleasure talking to you. It's interesting right. to hear another side of, of Desert Storm put and put so succinctly. I hope that uh, you continue to head up that foundation and uh, that the teachings you touched on today endure. Thank you so much again. My pleasure, Peter. Thank you so much. Well, we look forward to uh, continuing uh, this dialogue with you. And uh, we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. Uh, you can get in touch with us uh, through email at spycast at spymuseum, that's one word, dot org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you.